Welcome to the Vox Church Podcast. We're so excited that you're taking some time today to listen to today's message. If something from today's message specifically touches your heart, text Vox Church, all one word, to 97000, and one of our leaders would love to connect with you. Also, make sure you visit voxchurch.org for more information about our church and upcoming service locations and times. God bless you. My name is Ivelisse, um, and the Bible to me means everything. I think that definitely is the Word of God uh, through which God talks to us and the way He communicates with me. Um, before I came to Christ, I used to go to a Catholic school, and we, we learned the Bible, but it didn't mean the same thing that it means right now. Uh, as soon as I accepted Christ and I started reading the Bible, I felt that the, the Word of God was talking to me, that it was directly uh, specific to my need and specific to what I was going through. And the same is true right now. Every day I read the Bible, it's like reading for the first time again in the sense that God talks to what is going on in my life. It's the way of communication. Uh, the main way of communication that I have with God and the way I know His will in my, in my life, the way I know how to walk the next steps in life, and to me is part of a passion of following Christ. If I don't know what He has to say through His Word, then I would not know what to do next in my life. I would not know how to uh, conduct myself with others. I would not know how to love others, and I believe that is the most important tool that God has given us uh, in order to be able to hear from Him. And I love the Bible. Welcome to Vox Church. I am so excited to be with you this morning. If you're new to Vox, my name is Justin. I'm the lead pastor. Thank you for being with us. Always like to take a moment, welcome all of our locations. We are one church in nine different locations from Worcester to Stanford. Can we put our hands together? Brantford, we love you. God bless you, church in North Haven in Middletown. God bless you. Thank you for being a part of our church family. I'm telling you, God is at work in your life. Can you turn to the person next to you and just tell them God is at work in your life? Go ahead, just tell them God is at work in your life. So many exciting things happening right now. Next week, we start a summer teaching series called Love Like Jesus. I'm so excited about that, Love Like Jesus. We're going to be talking about the call of the church to make a difference in the world. What does it mean to love like Jesus? Doing all sorts of uh, incredible things over the course of the summer. Really, really excited about that. Also, July 4th is coming up. Special day in American history, right? We celebrate our freedom, our independence. Grateful for a nation where we are free. Come on, somebody say amen. Amen. I am. I am. But next Sunday is also a very special day for a lot of reasons. Next Sunday is June 19th. It's Father's Day. It's also uh, my anniversary. So my wife and I, 18 years on, on next Sunday. Yeah. So we're excited about that. But it's a special day for our nation as well. It marks the official end of slavery, right? And as the people of God, this is really an incredible thing because we are called as God's people to celebrate the truth that God has created every single person in his image, right? Regardless of race, regardless of background, every person deserves honor and dignity and freedom. And so in your welcome pack at every one of our locations, just a little bit of information about June 19th, about Juneteenth, and about the history of our nation, some prayer points for the church. And along with that, at the end of that little card, you'll see there's a section that talks about a six-week program we're starting in August called Living Undivided. Six weeks of classes where we talk about the intersection of faith, 
and race from a biblical worldview. And listen, the world is crazy out there, and the goal of the enemy is to divide the people of God. But we need to understand that together in Christ, we truly are one. And so it's a powerful six-week class. I encourage you to check it out. You can get all the information on that card. Just follow the links, and, uh, and it's going to be a blessing to our church. I believe it in Jesus' name. The last seven weeks, we've been looking at this idea of convictions. What does it mean to live my life on biblical foundations, on biblical foundations that go deeper than what I feel, what I think in the moment? And we've been walking through the Apostles' Creed. If you've been with us, this is week eight. This is actually the final week. We've gone through every line of the Apostles' Creed, and today we're going to wrap it up. But I want to read the whole creed to you. It says this, I believe in God, the Father Almighty maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, who is conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. We talked about that. What does it mean that he died? The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits on the right hand of the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. We looked at the second coming of Jesus. I believe in the Holy Ghost. Talked about the Holy Spirit, the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. The Holy Catholic, that means unified church, the church all together. We are one. The forgiveness of sins. Here's our text for our section for today. The resurrection of the body and life everlasting. Somebody say amen. 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 And so today as we wrap up this creed, we've looked at all these different elements covered in the creed, but we're going to look at today the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. And for our text today, I want to be in Colossians chapter 2. If you're new to the Bible, the book of Colossians, written to a church in the first century by the Apostle Paul, and he's writing to this church to instruct them about the gospel. What is the good news? That's what gospel means. What is the good news of Jesus Christ? And in chapter 2, verse 13, he says this, very, very important. He says, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. I want to speak just for a few minutes under the heading, You Are Here. Can you look at the person next to you, every one of our locations, and tell them, You Are Here. Here, come on, go ahead, just tell them. Maybe they'll remember my title by the time they get to the parking lot. You are here. You are here. Yes, you are. Yes, you are. You are here. Wherever you are, you are here. Let's pray. Father, in the name of Jesus, I thank you for your church. Thank you for what you're doing all across our locations in Greater Bridgeport and in Stanford and Hartford and Middletown and right here in Brantford and all those join us online. The way that you're working, the way that you're moving, we welcome you, Holy Spirit. Would you speak to us today? Would you change us? God, you know the work that needs to happen in our hearts so much more and so much clearer than we do. And so I pray that you would do that work in Jesus' name. Everybody said, amen. amen. You ever gotten lost? Ever gotten lost, like really lost? I know this doesn't happen very often anymore, right? Because of our GPS and our phone and all of our technology. A lot of times we don't get lost like we used to get lost. Those of us that are over 35 remember how you used to get lost, right? It was all kinds. Of, you'd be asking people for directions. Nobody does it anymore. Somebody walks up to ask for directions like, just use your phone. What's wrong with you, right? Like we just assume that you have the technology. But back in the day, you used to get really lost. Every once in a while, your GPS won't load. And it's like, how dare you, right? Like, how dare you not load? I need you right now. You know, like we have this expectation that I'm not going to get lost. But years ago, before all the GPS stuff, me and a number of friends, we were doing some ministry in Iceland, in Reykjavik, 
Iceland. And the first day we got there, we stopped at the house that we'd be staying at, and then we quickly left, and we were on a bus all day just seeing sights and doing some things, meeting people. And at the end of the day, it was very, very late. The bus dropped us off at the end of the street, and there was probably at 10, 30, 11 o'clock at night, okay? And so there's four or five of us, and we're walking back to our home that we're staying in. Of course, this is all new. We don't know anybody. Our phones don't work, all of that, uh, because we're in a foreign country. And so we get out of the bus, and we walk down to the end of our street, and we're like, let's just go to our house and get in bed. We're all tired. It's 11 o'clock at night or whatever. And we get there, and we, we, we're about to go into the house, and we realize, wait a minute, this, this isn't our house. Like, we were only there for five minutes, but I'm sure this isn't it, because look, our bags aren't in the living room, and, and the lights are all off. I don't think this is our house. And we're like, well, maybe it's this one, and then we go to the next one, and, and maybe it's this one. On this particular street, every house looked the same, you know? And so by the seventh or eighth house, you're like, None of these are the house we're staying at, you know? And then it kind of, kind of, kind of, uh, you know, struck us. It, it sunk in like, hey, uh, we're on the wrong street. <laughs> and the bus is gone. The bus dropped us off on the wrong street in Reykjavik, Iceland. I don't know anyone. The phone doesn't work. It's 11 o'clock at night. Every light in every house is off. You can't go knocking doors, right? It's like, what am I going to, what are we going to do? And so we're looking, this house, this house, we should start to panic, you know? And it's snowing outside and it's cold because it's, Iceland. And so, and so, you know, it's cold. So we're out there and we're going, oh my goodness. And, and that's where you start thinking like, we're going to die out here. Like we're going to, we are literally, what are we going to do? And so we ended up spending the night out there. We made an igloo. No, I'm just kidding. We didn't do that. <laughs> Some of you are like, really? No, no, that's not what happened. No, actually, if you know, if you know Matt and Kate, they run our Hartford and, and Springfield locations. They were with us and Kate had this hunch and she said, you know, guys, I think, I think we were a few streets up, down and around the corner. And we're like, no, we weren't. She's like, no, I think we were. Turns out she was right, saved our lives. Thank you, Jesus, for a woman with some intuition, but amen. All the women are like, woo, yeah, yeah, it's true. Although you do tend to get lost. Anyways, I'm just, not, we're not going to go there today. But I hate the feeling, I hate the feeling of being lost, right? I hate that feeling of like, uh, you know, and even though we live in a time where you may not get lost physically very often, it is frequent that we get lost emotionally. We get lost psychologically. We get lost spiritually. You know, we're living in times where it's very easy to get spun around. These are dizzying times, right? You've got COVID. You've got wars. You've got the economy. You've got all these different crazy things. And I think a lot of us were at this place where it's like, you know, I'm kind of done with COVID. Like, can we just never, ever, ever, ever mention it again? And, and I don't want to think about it. And, and what I, I think what we have to realize is that, is that we have collectively as a world, right, globally been through significant trauma. And that trauma takes a long time to process and to work out. And so I think whether you realize it or not, the last two and a half, three years is affecting you more than you know. It's affecting you more than you know. Maybe you find yourself grumpy. Maybe you find yourself angry, you know, and you're like, I don't even know why. And it's you processing, you know, some of the trauma of this last year. You can turn to your spouse and say, well, that explains a lot about you. You know, that explains, you know, that could be it, right? You're like, no, I'm not saying that. All right, that's fine. Maybe you find yourself running to escapes, you know, like you keep trying to do that diet, but you keep giving up after about 10 minutes. Or you keep trying to cut back TV, but you keep finding yourself, you know, binging Netflix because you're just running to these escapes because that's how you've learned to process your trauma, right? Or maybe you keep losing your keys. Come on, somebody. You keep losing your keys or you keep losing your phone because you just don't seem to be able to remember where things are anymore. Psychologists are calling this COVID brain. 
COVID brain. And it's this mental fragmentation that is more and more prevalent in our time where we just can't seem to get focused, but you layer on top of your COVID brain the flood of information that you're receiving moment by moment, day by day, through your phone, through the TV, through your computer, through every uh, you know, billboard, et cetera, et cetera. And all these various stories are being told all around you. You may not identify it that way, but it's real, right? So you've got the cultural stories, right, of the celebrities are doing this and that, and, and there's this new gadget out, and you can go buy this and all those stories. And then you've got the political stories of, well, if this person just gets elected, our problems will be solved, and this is not true, and what about that? And, and then you've got the economic stories about, well, get ready for interest rates and, and gas prices and all these different things, right? And then you've got the societal stories of this is an injustice, and this wasn't right, and something must be done, you know? And then you've got all the relationships of your own life where, hey, did you hear about Uncle Joe and, and what happened to them and she's angry at me and, and we haven't been talking much and all the different tensions that you're living with right now. But on top of all those stories, you've got this inner narrative going on inside of you, this little voice that keeps talking to you. And maybe you've identified it and maybe you have not. Either way, it's still talking. I don't know what it's saying to you, but it might be saying something like, you know, you're a little further behind than you should be. I mean, look at those other people. They've accomplished more than you have. They've done more than you have. They look better than you have. They're healthier than you have. You know what? What, what are you even doing with your life? What's wrong with you? What is wrong? This little inner narrative. And most of us, whether we realize it or not, we are struggling to locate ourselves. Where are you? Where, where, where are you really? Where, where are you really? You know, this problem isn't new. In fact, we're told in Genesis that when Adam and Eve disobey God, he comes looking for them. And the first question that God speaks to the human race after sin entered the world is, where are you? It's the first question. And it's interesting because God knew where they were. It wasn't like he didn't you know, know where they, he's like, oh, I lost track. Of you. No, no, no. He wasn't asking for his own sake. He was asking for their sake. He wanted them to ask themselves, where am I? He was looking to draw this out of them, And it's a revealing question because it's teaching us that we need to know where we are. And this is exactly, by the way, what Paul is going after in Colossians chapter 2, this little text that we read, that he wants you to see that beyond all the stories you've been dealing with, the political stories, the economic stories, the personal stories, the inner stories, all those stories that you've been dealing with, beyond all those, there's a bigger story, a supernatural story, a God-sized story, that God is telling a story all across human history. And if you don't know it, you won't know where you actually are. If you haven't internalized it, if you haven't received it, if you haven't submitted to it, if you haven't understood it, you'll never know where you are because you've got to grasp the greater story of God. So if you want to find your true location and discover where you really are, you have to see your life in light of the story of God. So where are you, Adam? If you know the story, Adam was hiding behind a bush because he was naked, right? He was naked, yeah, and, and he was hiding behind a bush because he was ashamed. He was ashamed of his own nakedness. Well, Scripture tells us that our true location might surprise us, right? That although you may feel very, very alive, a life outside of Christ is a life of spiritual death. If you notice where Paul started in the text, he says, And you 
who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. You who were dead in your sin and the uncircumcision of your flesh. What does it mean to be dead in sin? Now, for Christians, we may have heard these thoughts so many times, but what I've found is in my own life and in the lives of thousands of others that I've walked with in the faith, what I've discovered is oftentimes they don't go deep enough. That, they, that we, we know these things peripherally, but we don't know them deeply. And so this idea of being dead in sin... What does it mean to be dead in sin? Well, if you know the story, God speaks to Adam and he says, do not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil for the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. Now, this is a picture for us, okay, to understand humanity. And so Adam has a choice. He can either live in glad submission to God or he can live in a pursuit of independence from God. And Adam has this choice. Do I want to be my own God, make my own calls, do my own thing? Or do I want to submit to God and trust that his way is actually better for me in the long run? Submit to God or be independent of God back and forth and our first parents choose to disobey and it's intriguing though because God tells them that the day you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you will surely die but if you know the story he eats of the tree and doesn't die and so it's like well that was kind of a typo like what happened there right well he didn't die physically but he did die spiritually that day see to die physically is when your heart stops pumping your brain stops firing but to die spiritually is to be marked by sin to be outside of relationship with God. And this is the natural condition of the unredeemed heart. Something inside of every one of us seeks independence from God, seeks to do things my own way. Sometimes we pretty it up. Sometimes we put makeup on it. But at the end of the day, there is something in you that wants to control your own life, something in you that wants God to come alongside you and bless your plan rather than submit to God and surrender to his plan. And so there's this fight. And the Bible describes this again and again, this problem of sin. It says this, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's Romans chapter 3. It says, there is no one who does not sin, 1 Kings 8. No one living is righteous. That's about as clear as it gets, right? Psalm 143. If you say you have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. In other words, you can't know yourself unless you begin to see the sinfulness that lives inside of you. Where are you? Where are you? Because until you internalize God's story, you're going to really struggle to see yourself. You know, it's funny because a lot of us, we see people who are dead in sins, but they look very much alive, right? Maybe you're here today. And you say, well, I'm not living my life in glad and joyful submission to Jesus Christ, but I'm still alive. I'm alive. I've got a career. I'm raising my kids. I'm, I'm falling in love. I'm cheering for my favorite sports teams, go Celtics, and, and, I'm, and I'm doing all these different things, and, and I'm alive, right? I'm very much alive, and, 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 and that's true. You look alive physically, but underneath the surface, there's something desperately wrong. You're searching. You're seeking. You're empty of God. I love what the old mathematician Blaise Pascal said. He said, there is, look at this, a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of each man, which cannot be satisfied by any created thing, but only by God the creator. There's a God-shaped vacuum inside of me. There's a God-shaped vacuum inside of you. Until you see it, you can't know yourself. And so to be spiritually dead is to be empty of God. And so what fills the emptiness within me if God's not filling it? Well, the number one candidate to fill the emptiness inside of you and me if God is not filling it is ego. Everybody say ego. 
ego. You call it pride, you call it self-focus, whatever, but ego, ego. Paul used a specific word to describe ego in the Greek language. It's interesting. It's called uh, fuseao, fuseao. You don't care about that, but it's an interesting word because it really means, it means more than ego. It means to be puffed up. It means to be overinflated. It means to be swollen or bloated. Okay, so it's a picture. Imagine like an organ, like a liver or a kidney, and it's just swollen, swollen, swollen to the point where it's just hard as can be. And every, any minute it could burst, it could explode, and it could end the life of an individual. So here's a definition of ego. Ego is the illusion that I am capable and competent to run my own life, achieve a sense of worth, and find purpose and significance without God. That's what ego is, this idea that I can do this without him. Now, ego doesn't always mean that I completely reject God. In fact, there are a lot of people who call themselves Christ followers, but are still driven by ego, right? Because ego just means that I want God to come alongside, help me in my plans, but I want to still maintain ultimate control. Now, ego is a deceptive companion because it often hides beneath our awareness. In other words, I could ask you, hey, are you arrogant and proud? And you'd be like, no, I don't think I am, right? I'm never proud. I'm never proud at all. Well, that sounds kind of proud. Well, there's the problem, right? See, we learn to justify ourselves. We learn to ignore our ego. We learn to explain it away. We learn to protect it. And so the problem with ego is that it's not big enough to fill the God-sized vacuum. And so what's it doing? It's rattling around in there. It's always puffing itself up. It's always trying to make itself a little bit bigger so that it can fill the void that it's too small to fill. And so... We live in a constant state, I'm talking to somebody today, of comparison and competition and self-promotion or self-loathing or overconfidence or over-insecurity, always comparing. I love what C.S. Lewis said about this. Listen to this. He said, pride gets no pleasure out of having something. I wonder if you can see this in yourself. Only out of having more than the next person. We say that the person is proud of being rich or clever or good-looking, but they are not. They are proud of being richer or cleverer or better-looking than others. Do you see inside of yourself this propensity to inflate and exaggerate? I was just last night trying to think of an example in my own life of exaggerating or inflating. You know, I just couldn't think of any. Right. Right. I was just making sure you're paying attention there. No, but but one illustration I, I did think of was uh, just yesterday I was I was flipping over rocks with my daughter because she's three years old and she likes to find bugs. She doesn't want to touch them. I was trying to get her to hold a worm. She's not there. But but she does. She does want to look at them. You know, she's like, oh, those are weird. And then she just wants to put the rock back on. But she's we're flipping over rocks the other day or yesterday. And, and when we flipped over one rock, there was like this ant infestation. I mean, it was like all this larva and and, you know, it's just disgusting. It was like dun, 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 dun. they're all running all over the place. And she's like, yeah, you know, she's like kind of freaked out by it. And it's like, oh, that's gross. Just put the rock back over it. And so we did. We didn't even want to look at it. We just like, just put the rock back over it. And I think a lot of times that's what happens in our own hearts. That underneath the surface, there's this arrogance, this pride, this need for promotion, this self-inflation, this look at me. And yet, as soon as we see it, we're like, no, just put the rock back over it. Don't even worry about that. Just cover it up. It's not really even there, but it's there. It's there. A sign of spiritual death is to be constantly searching. Searching for affirmation, searching for achievement, searching to prove yourselves. I remember when I was a kid, I first got my license, you know, and I'd be on the highway. And, and I'm driving a car. All you new licensed drivers don't follow this instruction. This was a stupid thing to do, but I'm driving, and somebody would pass me, and I'd be like, how dare you? 
you know, and it was just like, I started racing. The, they didn't know we were racing. Only I knew that we were racing. But that didn't matter as long as I won the race. You know what I mean? And it's just like, like and, and, but you know, the funny thing, it wasn't just with driving. It was with everything. I found myself racing everyone. In fact, I was always racing, always feeling like, you know, you're a little bit behind. You know, you need to go a little faster. You need to do a little more. You need to be a little more. You need to show it. And, and, then, and then finally, I remember years ago, I just asked myself, well, who, who am I? I mean, I'm racing the invisible man. Who am I racing behind who? Who am I even trying to beat? And we tell ourselves, well, you know, if you were just a little bit more successful, if you just had a little bit of a nicer house, if you just had a little bit more money, if you just had whatever it might be for you, a little bit less trauma or pain or problems, then you'd be happy. We think a little bit more will do it. I came across a study recently about CEOs in America, and CEOs of major corporations across America are depressed at more than double the rate of the general public. More than double the rate. These guys, these gals, they've got everything. How can they be more than double the kids of wealthy families are statistically more anxious than kids from middle or lower incomes, right? Turn to your kids. See, see, you're welcome. You're welcome. That's why I didn't get you that boat, right? Celebrities suffer from mental illness at exponential rates. Exponential rates, celebrities, those that are famous, those that are well-known. You probably saw the headlines about Chesley Christ. I don't know if you followed this, but she was an honor student in college, graduated from law school in 2017, 2019. She won the Miss USA pageant. And then earlier this year, on January 30th, Chesley Chris jumped off a 60-story high-rise building in Midtown Manhattan. And you hear the story, and you're like, wait, this, this goes against the cultural narrative that we just assume this person's happy, right? It's like, they, they, how could they not be happy, right? How could a successful person take their own life? We don't know all the details, but here's what we do know. We're missing something in our understanding about where we are. Maybe having it all doesn't leave you more fulfilled. Maybe it often leaves you more aware of how empty you really are. Yeah. And so to be spiritually dead is to be out of step with God. And when you're out of step with God, you have an unsettled conscience. You know what I'm talking about. And if you don't, then you haven't yet become aware of where you are. An unsettled conscience. An unsettled conscience isn't sure where we stand. We're always a little bit insecure. I remember years ago reading a New York Times article that spoke of the inner murmur of self-reproach. That phrase helped me so much. The inner murmur of self-reproach. That little voice inside of you that just tells you you're not enough. You know you're not holy enough. You know you're not special enough. You know you're not smart enough. You know you're not a good enough parent. You know, you don't matter enough. You know, you're not pretty enough. You know, you're not this enough. You're not that enough. You haven't made enough. Do you recognize that voice? Do you know it? You know, something caught my attention in Colossians chapter 2. Something that's very, very important. That throughout the text, Paul frequently uses legal terms to describe our situation and where we are. He says we have a record of debt. He calls it legal demands and legal authorities. He does this because he wants you to see in a picture, in a metaphor, where you stand. He wants you to see that you are, in fact, standing in a courtroom. You're standing on trial. That life is a court case. It's a trial. That every day there's a prosecution and there's a defense. Every day there are things that tell you you're good enough and there are things that tell you you're not good enough. And every day there's a battle between the two. Am I justified? Am I right? Did I do it good? Am I acceptable? Am I... Smart enough, good enough, talented enough, successful enough. 
And so we go back and forth. Now, I don't know if you've spent much time in a courtroom, but in the little bit amount of time that I've spent in a courtroom, I've discovered that a courtroom is a place of consistent anxiety. Have you ever felt this? I mean, you don't even have to go to a courtroom to know this. You can just watch it on TV, right? If there's a TV show or a movie, everything's going on, it's fine, you're barely paying attention, and then they get to the courtroom, and it's like your palms start to sweat. You're like, oh my goodness. What's going to happen, right? Something about a courtroom just grabs our attention, just sucks us in. And I remember years ago, I was in the courtroom for somebody that didn't even have anything to do with me. I was there for an internship. I was doing everything. And I'm just sitting in the courtroom, and I'm anxious. And I'm like, I don't even know these people. And I'm anxious because just being there, there's something about it that's just like, oh, don't arrest me. Like, you know, like, there's something about it that's like, you know, there's just something. Like, what did I do? I don't know. Did I steal a G.I. Joe when I was nine? Like, are they going to find out? Like, I'm not sure. But, but like, it's just it's something about it brings anxiety. See, just as a courtroom is a physical place, Paul's helping us understand that so also a courtroom is a spiritual place. That in spiritual language, your ego is on trial. And you are searching, you're appealing, you're lobbying, and you're looking. What are you looking for? You're looking for a verdict. You're looking to have a verdict spoken over your life. And you need somebody to give it to you. And so maybe you're asking your girlfriend. Maybe you're asking your wife. Maybe you're asking your boss. Maybe you're asking society at large. But you need a verdict, and the reality of life is that the verdict never comes. And so because the verdict never comes, there is a restlessness, a restlessness that undergirds our experience in living. No matter how famous, no matter how successful you are, this restlessness remains. It's why Tom Brady years ago in an interview said, why do I have all these Super Bowl rings but still think there's something greater for me? It's why Madonna said years ago, even though I have become somebody, I still have to prove that I am somebody. My struggle has never ended and I guess it never will. Restlessness. Is that true? Is it true that the struggle has never ended and it never will? That you'll spend your whole life puffing yourself up trying to prove insecure? Is that really true? See, friend, this right here is the junction point of all things. This is what makes Christianity the greatest revolution in history. Because Christianity tells us that the ultimate verdict is in. Christianity tells us that God has spoken, that God has acted, that he has swung the gavel, that he's given the final verdict, and the final verdict is recorded in the last three lines of the Apostles' Creed. The final verdict decrees that you have the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. Amen. That's the decree. That God has intervened, that he's done something, gone to the very deepest part of your soul, the part of you that was spiritually dead, and he made you alive. Look at what Paul says in verse 13. He says, and you, you might not know where you've been, you might not know where you are, and you who were dead in your trespasses, the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. See, to be spiritually alive, come on somebody, means that you're no longer at odds with God, that he has filled the void. He has answered the ultimate question through the forgiveness of your trespasses. Now remember, when I first read that verse, I'm I'm not kidding. When I first read that verse as a Christian, I was trying to read the Bible and it was hard and I didn't understand 99% of it. It was all confusing and I'm like, who are the Nephilim? You know, you're all confused about all these different things. And you don't know all the answers to all the things, and I still only know a fraction of them. But I remember I got to this passage, and I was like, that that can't be right. How how can he write that? Forgiven us. I remember circling it in my first Bible. Forgiven us all our trespasses? Forgiven us all. And I remember just the size of that just was like almost offensive to me. 
Like, how could he say that he's forgiven me of all? My, like, there are trespasses I'm going to do tomorrow. And, and next year, if I'm still alive, God willing. And 10 years from now, how can God say that he's forgiven me of all? You can't do, you don't know what I'm going to do. Like, he didn't know what I'm going to do. You know, like, yeah, like, God, how could you say that? How can you do that? He tells us how in verse 14, just the next verse. Look at it. Forgiving us all our trespasses by canceling, look at it, the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. This is so important. This is so important. You have a record of debt. That's important. God has not forgotten anything. He sees you from the day you were born until the day you die. And he knows every detail of every sin. He knows every half-truth. He knows every lust. He knows every fear. And he has a record, okay? And God demands holiness. And he is a holy God. And so just as God's holiness demands justice for the record of debt, so his love compelled him to intervene. And so God came in the person of Christ and he stood before Pontius Pilate. And this is important because when he stood before Pontius Pilate, come on, two things were happening at the same place. He was being tried physically before a courtroom of men and women, but he was also standing in the courtroom of heaven. And so as the courtroom of human decision was judging him as guilty for crimes he didn't commit, so the courtroom of heavenly decision, the heavenly courtroom at the exact same time saw your record of sins and looked at each sin specifically over your life. Think about this for a moment. I was trying to get my head around this. Just the record of debt. How many sins have you committed? Some of you are like, five. Well, I think, I think that ego thing might be blinding you a little bit, right? Like, it's not five. It's not 10. It's not 100. It's not 1,000. It's not 10,000. It's not a million. It's not 100 million. How many sins have you committed? How many? Who could even keep track? How many sins have you committed? You know, a couple weeks ago, we had the privilege of walking through the Holocaust Children's Memorial in Jerusalem. We were at the, uh, the museum, the Memorial Museum, and, 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 and I haven't stopped thinking about it since I left, but, but there's this one exhibit where it's all candles. Uh, it's a candle for every child who was, who was murdered in the Holocaust, and, and there are 1.5 million candles, and, and every as you walk through the exhibit, every name of every child who was killed is being spoken one at a time. One at a time. It just goes on and on and then repeats one at a time. One at a time. And so as you're walking through, you're hearing name after name because every child is remembered. You know, you walk through this and it's just beyond words. It's just, you know, it's just overwhelming. Just the idea, just the thought of all these names, of all these children. So every sin remembered, every sin spoken, every sin on this list. See, in those times, the Romans would put a sign on a cross that told everyone else what the person had done. And so the sign might say he was a murderer or he was a thief. And then they would nail the person to the cross with the sign over their head. And if you know your Bible, you know that Jesus' sign said, King of the Jews. That was the sign that was over his head, right? King of the Jews. But what we need to understand is that as the Romans were nailing that sign to the cross, God, according to Paul in Colossians 2, was nailing your record of debt 
to the cross. So he was nailing this record of debt to the cross so that the sacrifice of Christ could pay for your record of debt in full, past, present, future, your whole life, so that that list were told. These two words blew my mind. It says that list now can be set aside. It can be set aside. It can be put away. It can be removed. No longer does God see it and no longer does God hold you accountable for it. That's why Paul could write years later, listen to what he says in, or excuse me, uh, chapters later in Romans 5. He says, therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. So he's speaking of the sin of human nature of Adam that led to sin for all people. So now Christ's one act of righteousness leads to justification. Now justification, again, is a legal term. It means to be acquitted. It means to be exonerated. It means to be released. And so Christ was condemned so that I could be justified so that my soul could know that the ultimate verdict has been spoken over your life. You are forgiven. That's the verdict. You are forgiven. <laughs> but there's only one way to obtain this verdict. And I think this is where so many Christians stumble and so many Christians struggle and so many Christians never obtain because there's only one way. And Romans 5 tells us in verse 1, it says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The light's coming on for somebody today. Therefore, having been justified, receiving pardon from God must be by faith alone. This is the only way to have peace. It means that I cannot contribute to my own justification. So beware of missing the power and the simplicity of God's offer. Beware of calling yourself a Christian your whole life but never trusting Christ alone by faith because the human ego squirms under grace. The human ego constantly seeks to justify itself, constantly seeks to add to God's work, constantly seeks to create requirements beyond faith to be justified. There is something inside of all of us, in fact, all man-made religion that says, well, yes, his love plus, well, yes, his grace plus, well, yes, God's good, but you have to also having been justified by faith, trust. See, Paul describes specifically those who would try to add to God's grace in Romans 10. He says, for I can testify about them that they're zealous for God. Maybe that's you today. You're zealous for God, but their zeal is not based on knowledge. Since they did not know the righteousness of God, and here's the key phrase, sought to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. In other words, internally, I'm still racing that person in the car. Internally, I'm still covering up the pride that's hidden underneath the rock. Internally, I'm still puffing out my chest. I'm still trying to fill the void that only God can fill. I'm still comparing. I'm still competing. I'm still doing all this. And the root of that is that I will not submit to God's kindness. I won't submit to his righteousness. Instead, I'm trying to establish a righteousness on my own. And the problem is you might be zealous, but you'll never find peace you'll never find peace 
See, the natural inclination of, of the human ego is always to establish my own righteousness, to always prove that I'm a good person. And the gospel is the ultimate insult to the ego. The gospel forces me to admit I'm a sinner. It forces me to admit I am incapable of pleasing God on my own strength, that I'm not a good person who just needs to be a little better or a bad person who just needs to be a little bit more good. I'm, in fact, spiritually a dead person. And if you prick a dead person, they don't move. I am numb to God unless God himself drives draws me, unless God himself awakens me, unless God himself accepts me, and then I can have life from the dead. Then, having been justified by faith, we have peace. See, this is the mystery of the gospel. Stay with me, because only the gospel gives the verdict before the performance. This thought is mind-bending, because we live in a world where every worldview and every system, it says you must perform and then you get a verdict. You must perform, and then you get a verdict. By the way, this is the foundation of every religion on earth. You can look at the Jews. You can look at the Muslims. You can look at the Buddhists. You perform, and then you get a verdict. And you can even look at the atheist or the agnostic, and they're still performing for a verdict. It may be somebody else's verdict other than God's. But always, 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 there is no final verdict. No verdict will come. See, in Christianity, your performance does not lead to your verdict. You don't earn acceptance on the merits of your deeds. The secret of Christianity is that that the verdict over your life leads to your performance. That Check this out. You got to stay with this. This is a little bit mind-bending. That a holy life flows from faith in a new identity. That when I accept the verdict over my life, I now am empowered to perform in a way that I could not previously. The power to live free from sin is, comes from trusting what Christ has already done. This is life from the dead. This is the supernatural gift of Christianity, that this process of getting to a place where I'm truly living from the verdict of God's acceptance, learning that the words forgiven us all our trespasses apply personally to me. And the progressive result of this truth in the heart is peace and joy. That's what it leads to. And you can find freedom from comparisons. And you can find freedom from shame. And you can find freedom from past failures. And you can find freedom from unhealthy competition. And you can find freedom from that inner voice that tells you you're a few steps behind. And the result, forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. Life everlasting. Where are you? Come on, ask yourself, where are you? Because until you know God's greater story, you can't find yourself in it. Where are you, Adam? Are you hiding behind a bush? Where are you? Well, the glory of the gospel is that only God can tell you where you are. And you must allow his truth to overrule the lie. I love Ephesians chapter 2 in the message translation. Eugene Peterson puts it poetically and beautifully. He captures the idea of where you are. Listen to it. He says, Immense in mercy and with incredible love, he embraced us. He took our sin-dead lives and made us alive in Christ. He did, it all, he did all this on his own with no help from us. Then he picked us up and set us down in highest heaven in company with Jesus our Messiah. Now... God has us where he wants us, 
with all the time in this world and the next to shower grace and kindness upon us in Christ Jesus. Saving is all his idea and all his work. All we do is trust him enough to let him do it. It's God's gift from start to finish. Eight weeks, we've explored the truths of the Apostles' Creed, the foundational truths of Christianity. But this truth truly is life from the dead when it gets in you. And so many of us, maybe you followed Christ for five years or 10 years or 15 years or 20 years, so many of us don't live in the freedom of this truth. And so I just believe that right now something's changing in you, that God wants to set you free from that shame. He wants to deliver you from that condemnation. He wants to give you a new power to walk away from that sin. He wants to give you peace that he promised all along. And it starts when I believe in the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. Amen. Would you stand with me? Every location. I want to invite you today to take a moment to close your eyes and open your heart. Reflect upon what you've heard. And I want to invite anyone who is not at peace with God to come to God by faith in Christ right now to put your hope in the good news of grace that Jesus Christ died and rose again so that you might have eternal life and hope repent of your sin that means to turn away and run to God you don't have the strength to change. You don't have the capacity to become holy in yourself. It must be a work of grace. But he says that today he sets before you life and death. Choose life. Come to him now. Open your heart to Christ. Let him forgive you of your sins. Let him heal you of your past. Let him give you peace with God. It's called the good news because it's so good that it's too good not to be true. Every prophecy points to Jesus. All of history aims at him. Right now, he calls you home. He's not what you expect, but he's exactly what you need. He's peace for your soul. He's life from the dead. Finally, that voice that pushes you to prove yourself can be silenced because the ultimate verdict has been spoken by God. You're loved. You're forgiven. He accepts you. Come as you are. He won't leave you that way, but he'll take you that way. Come as you are. Come as you are to Christ right now. At every one of our locations, every single person here today, I want to invite you to faith in Christ. And if there is one or two or five or ten that you are not at peace with God, I want to call you to a moment of decision today. A moment of decision to trust in Christ to open your life to him, to surrender to him, and to receive forgiveness of sins and peace. If you're here today and you're not at peace with God, you're far from God, I am calling you now to respond. I want to lead you in a simple prayer. 
a simple prayer of repentance and faith, of trust in Christ. Right now, this is your moment. This is your time. And I want to invite you in this moment now as a symbol of surrender and faith to just stick up your hand so that I can see it. Stick up your hand right now so that I can see it. God bless you. God bless you. All across this room, God bless you. Stick up your hand so I can see it. God bless you. At every one of our locations, I can't see every hand in Hartford, in Middletown. Just keep your hand up for a second. God bless you. God bless you. Anybody else? You may put your hands down. Anybody else all across our locations? This is your moment for peace with God. I'm going to lead you in a simple prayer of faith, and I encourage you to whisper this prayer to God right now. Say, Jesus, save me. Go ahead, whisper to him right now. I put my hope in you. I believe you died and rose again. Forgive my sin and make me new. Thank you for accepting me. Amen. 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 If you're here today, you're a follower of Christ. Maybe you've been following Christ for five years or ten years, but you find yourself constantly sucked back into the courtroom, constantly sucked back into that condemnation, that anxiety, those comparisons, that inner voice. Here's what I want to challenge you to do. Learn to relive the gospel again and again and again. Relive the gospel again and again and again. You know, when Jesus taught his disciples to pray, he said, begin this way, our Father in heaven. In other words, the first thing that you need to say is relational. Before you get to God's greatness, before you get to his power, you can only approach him because he's your father by faith in Christ. It's, what is he telling us? He's telling us prayer is repeating and reliving the gospel again and again. Remind yourself of Colossians 2. Remind yourself of the truth that he's forgiven us all our trespasses and hold on to it. And what you'll find is as you dig that truth down into your heart, the condemnation dissolves and peace comes. It's time to grow, friends. It's time to get free from that inner murmur of self-reproach. It's time to get free from that condemnation from your past. And I want to pray that today, that right now, God does a work of renewal in your soul. So, Father, in the name of Jesus, for every follower of Christ, for every believer here, for every person that feels that sense that they're in the courtroom again, comparing, competing, always trying to look at this person or that, how social media fills it, how our, how our culture fills it, how we're constantly looking to compare ourselves to someone else. Lord, I pray deliverance right now. I pray that the verdict, the ultimate verdict of grace would speak louder than all the lies and all the deceptions that today would be a day of freedom. Today would be a day of deliverance. Today would be a day of healing. Even as we lift up Jesus Christ now, in your name we pray. Thank you for listening today to this Vox Church sermon. If something from today's message spoke to you and you've just made the decision to follow Jesus, text Vox Church, all one word, to 97,000, and one of our leaders will help you as you begin your journey with Christ. God bless you.